Today's show is sponsored by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. Synchrony Financial has the payments, tools, and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights to help you achieve whatever you're working on. Learn more at SynchronyFinancial.com. Today's show is brought to you by MParticle. It's the only consumer data platform built for omni-channel experiences. Did you know the average American owns four digital devices? In a typical day, I use six or seven devices. I use an Apple Watch, an iPhone. I use AirPods. I sound like an Apple person, but I use a lot of devices. I use a Google Home. I use an Amazon Echo. I use my televisions. But when I use a product like Spotify or Airbnb, I expect it to know what I need. Those are just two of the world's most innovative brands that use MParticle to unify lots of customer data into a single source of truth. Then MParticle seamlessly delivers that data to any marketing or analytics platform without any additional work. Visit MParticle.com to learn how your business can improve customer experiences and accelerate growth. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Walter Isaacson, who I've interviewed many times before. He's the author of a new biography of Leonardo da Vinci, perhaps our first and greatest inventor. That, what a great what inventor. What a great inventor. But Walter has previously written biographies of people like Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and Steve Jobs, also great inventors, and is CEO of the nonprofit Aspen Institute, but that's changing. Is that, we'll talk about that in a bit. Walter, welcome to Recode Decode. It's good to be back with you, Karen. Thank you. You are just like a machine of creating uh, books. Your last You know, book- I've been working on this stuff for like 15, 20 oh, years. Oh, really? Okay. It's sort of the mountain I wanted to well, try well, to scale. Because last time we talked, you had written about about women in tech and stuff like that, and Steve Jobs before that, and obviously Franklin and Einstein. So let's give the, the listeners a little background of all the books you've written, at, focused on inventors, really, on tech and inventors. Yeah, you know, I've written about a lot of smart people, you know, right. so Ben Franklin and you know, Steve Jobs and Einstein. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that smart people are kind of common. Mm-hmm. They don't usually amount to much. You have to be inventive, as you said, innovative. Mm-hmm. You have to be creative and have imagination. And one of the things I learned from Steve Jobs, just watching him on stage, he always showed the intersection of the liberal arts street Mm -hmm. with technology street. He said that's in the DNA if you can stand at that intersection between the arts and sciences or uh, between beauty and engineering. That's where you'll be the most creative. And, you know, he, he really looked up to Leonardo da Vinci and Bill Gates had just bought the uh, Codex Lester, which mm-hmm. is Leonardo da Vinci's great notebook on geology and mm-hmm. science. And I realized that Leonardo was the person who best connected beauty to technology, best mm-hmm. connected art and science. And so I decided that would be a culmination of all these books about what is creativity and how do we achieve it? All right. So let's talk about the books you've done already. Now, you obviously are a journalist. You've done – give a little background for yourself because not Well, I grew up you. in New Orleans and worked yeah. on the paper down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then uh, came up to Time Magazine back in the days when paper-based weekly news magazines yeah. actually it's were thriving. Time this week. Yeah, actually. I know. I know. And at Time Magazine, a couple things happened. 
First of all, I was called, I was what was called a floater for mm-hmm. a while. A floater means that one week you're writing in the medicine section, the next week you're writing in the music section. Mm-hmm. You know, the one week you're doing business, next week you're doing technology, then world affairs. So you try to see, you kind of try to understand the patterns across nature. You don't get siloed. You kind right. of see many different disciplines. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that that's Ben Franklin's strength. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a scientist. He did the lightning experience. But he's also a writer. You know, he has Paul Richard's Almanac and a, a diplomat and everything, a musician. So I said, you know, there's some people who are great at being specialists. Mm-hmm. They're great at geeking out, drilling down. But there are other people who see the patterns across nature. And I realized Steve Jobs was that way. Even Einstein, mm-hmm. when he gets stymied with his um, – Equations for general relativity pulls out his violin and plays Mozart because it helps connect him to the harmonies of the spheres. And that too led me to Leonardo da Vinci because everything he thought of himself as an engineer, an inventor, and a scientist. And um, at one point, he's writing a job application letter right when he's mm-hmm. reaching that very scary milestone of turning 30. And he uh, writes a job application letter to the Duke of Milan. It's 11 paragraphs. And the first 10 are all he can do in engineering and invention. Mm -hmm. He says, I can invent portable bridges. I can make great public buildings. I can divert water. I can make military weapons. Only in the very last paragraph, he says, I can also paint. Mm -hmm. So that ability to dance with nature across different Which has been the commonality of all the people you've been writing about. So before we get to Leonardo, because I want to talk only about Leonardo the whole time, but Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about this idea of of, of who you're going to write about, can you just go through your process? Like you say you've been writing this for 15 years. Tell me about that. Well, I've, um, you know, loved Florence and used to go there as a student. Mm -hmm. And you're always gathering string on Leonardo, and I saw some of his notebooks, and I realized there was a lot of material there. But my process was I was at Time Magazine. A close friend of mine, Evan Thomas, and I were you know, working there, and we were kind of frustrated because in the pre-internet days, you'd write one page a week. And mm-hmm. It was like, whoa, you know, it was pretty a little bit too easy. And we said, well, let's do a book. And we did it. It was called The Wise Men. It was mm-hmm. about six friends and how they created Cold War foreign policy. Not exactly a, you know, a runaway bestseller, but mm-hmm. fun to do. And after that, I decided, well, I like writing books because in this day and age when we're swamped with information, there's something kind of cool about narrative, which means it starts at the beginning and goes step by step through mm-hmm. time, and you see how people's minds change, how they mature, how things build. So I kind of liked writing books. I did uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, partly because the wise men ended with Vietnam, and I wanted to try to do mm-hmm. Vietnam. Uh, and frankly, after doing Kissinger, it's like, okay, after dealing with him, it's I need to do somebody who's been dead for 250 <laughs> years. You and, pick a lot of dead yeah. people. Well, and Ben Franklin. Because Leonardo's really dead. Yes, yeah, well, 500 years, yeah, but he's still alive on his notebook no, pages. No. But Ben Franklin, one reason I chose him is at the end of uh, Kissinger, I got to a point about realism in American mm-hmm. foreign policy, how we sometimes do balance of power games. And I realized Ben Franklin did that as a diplomat in Paris. Mm-hmm. You know, he balanced the Bourbon Pact nations of France and Netherlands and Spain against the British alliance. Uh, in order to get the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War. But nobody writes about 
Franklin is a diplomat. They mm-hmm. write about him. You know, they're usually great English professors who write right. about him. And then I discovered at the end of Franklin that his electricity experiments were so important. We sometimes think of him as a doddering dude flying mm-hmm. a kite in the rain. Mm-hmm. No. The single fluid theory of electricity is an awesome discovery, mm-hmm. and so too is the invention of the lightning rod. These right. are not little things we read in you know, our childhood books and then mm-hmm. forget about. And I realized that somebody like Franklin would have thought you a Luddite if you didn't keep up with the latest in science. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to wrestle with science and then moved on to Einstein. Right. Einstein, after I did, you know, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs called me and said, do me next. (laughs) My first reaction was, yeah, well, okay, Franklin, Einstein. Uh, And I said, let's wait 30 or 40 years till you retire. But then I realized that because I realized that I was told he was sick, that, oh, if you're going to do it, do it, do him now. And that was a great opportunity that most people don't have other than Boswell with Dr. Johnson to get very, very close to a person who significantly made a dent in mm-hmm. the universe. I mean, you know, I, I walk here and mm-hmm. everybody's on their iPod and their mm-hmm. GPS and they're tweeting and they're doing all these things mm-hmm. and they're calling Uber or they're getting to their Airbnb, none of which would have existed hadn't you, if you hadn't had, had an iPhone and then a mm-hmm. third-party apps on the iPhone. And so that was truly a you know, a once, you know, a a, a, a opportunity did. to try to get right the most creative and beautiful and spiritual inventor of our era. Mm-hmm. And after that, because, you know, he reminded me so much of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. And then, as I say, Bill Gates was interested in Leonardo da Vinci. And I had been sort of over 12, 15, 20 years, every now and then get somewhere and say, oh, there's Leonardo da Vinci notebook here in Paris or mm-hmm. in the British Library or at Windsor or at in Milan or it would come on tour. I realized that basing something on his notebooks could show me how the innovation, engineering, and invention connected with mm-hmm. art and beauty. So you started writing it 15 years ago. Talk about that. You, you, you were collecting string or you just had been long interested in him? I'd been long interested in him. My wife had uh, done her junior year abroad in Florence. And what struck me as I was gathering string was not being able to see Virgin of the Rocks at the mm-hmm. Louvre or the one in the National Gallery in London but actually seeing his notebooks. Mm -hmm. And they're weird because he writes in mirror script because he's Mm left-handed. And paper is sort of a premium. So on any page of the notebook, you see a mind that's beautifully dancing with nature because he'll go from a sketch of people at a table that might help him with the Last Supper to a, a set design for a play he's doing to a flying machine that's both part of the play but actually might become a real flying machine, to the mathematical problem of squaring the circle, all cramped onto a page. In fact, there's a wonderful page I love. I have it in the book as a big, you know, so you can see it as spread in the book in color. Because after all these little things he's doing on that page, there's, he writes about boiling certain types of nuts in oil and that you can use it to dye your hair blonde. (laughs) Tawny blonde is the word. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's in his early 30s. Right. No, it's not just chemistry. 
And he's a beautiful guy, mm-hmm. you know, when he's young. In fact, Vitruvian Man, you know, the naked guy spread eagle in the circle and square, that's largely a self-portrait. That's mm-hmm. what he looked like. He's mm-hmm. drawing himself inside the earth, the universe, and seeing how he fit into creation. So he's kind of vain. I mean, he dresses really well in purple and wonderful mm-hmm. tunics and stuff. And there he is figuring out how to dye his hair blonde. And mm-hmm. I go, yes, you know, this guy is human. Right, uh, right. And through the notebooks, you rather got I can humanize him as opposed to just doing like other writers on Leonardo, mainly start with the 12 great painting masterpieces and discuss his life. I said, no, let me do it page by page through the notebooks. And one other thing. Looking at those notebooks, this is a tech show. We're on a podcast. Mm-hmm. We know all sorts of forms of new mm-hmm. media. No doubt you've tweeted out the podcast. I and will. it's been right when it's I on Instagram there. and Facebook and Snap and Instantly everything. Instantly it will be. Yeah. Paper's not a bad technology. Mm-hmm. It is really a good technology for the storage and retrieval of information. Mm-hmm. After 500 years, we still can turn the pages of Leonardo's notebooks. Mm-hmm. From the 1990s, Steve Jobs had some memos on a Next computer at his house. Even with his techie, we mm-hmm. couldn't retrieve that because the Next operating system, mm-hmm. you know, is no longer can retrieve the documents that well. So every now and then, one of the lessons I learned is take notes on paper in a notebook. Mm-hmm. They'll be around 50 years for, you know, you've got two kids for your mm-hmm. grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Uh, they'll be around maybe 500 Walter, years. Walter, I do nothing on paper. Unlike Sorry, there's paper tweets. right here, but it's unusual Yeah, the paper here. I know, but I just mean maybe in the evening, just keep a journal. All right, well, we'll get things. to that in a second. We'll do the lessons of Leonardo, we'll do it at the end. But let's talk about, so you started doing it. Talk about the research of doing this, and then the next section I'd like to talk about, the meat of the book. It's an enormous book besides being size. What was your thing? How did you want to approach as the definitive biography of him, or what was your thinking? It was, to me, the biography that would weave together the science invention and art. Mm-hmm. You take Kenneth Clark, great biography, but, you know, he says, I think it was written, you know, uh, 80 years ago or so, he says, oh, but if Leonardo hadn't wasted it so much time on math and invention, he mm-hmm. could have finished more paintings. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, no, no, he wouldn't have been Leonardo if mm-hmm. he wasn't as curious about math and science and innovation. Uh, Martin Kemp has written a great books on Leonardo, but mine are kind of more chronological. They mm-hmm. begin with him being born and they end at the end of his life. And so it's a way to weave together in a narrative chronological way all the aspects of all his the life. aspects of his life. All right. Well, let's talk about him because when you mentioned this to me, I think two years, whenever you were working on it, I was surprised, and then I thought, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense because just the things you just talked about. So, talk about you think the key things people get wrong about Leonardo, and then we'll get into his life and how he conducted it, especially the math and science part of it. What do you think the conception of him is, and is it close to the person who you have written about? Well, I think the key thing people get wrong who are scholars on him or art critics is what I said about Kenneth Clark, which is that his time spent doing engineering and math was a waste Mm -hmm. because none of his, you know, the helicopter never really flew the you know, he tried to divert the Arno River and it didn't get diverted and the tanks never rolled and mm-hmm. he never squared the circle, which is the problem he spent his whole life doodling in his notebooks on. 
Uh, and I feel that if you don't have the depth and breadth of uh, interest mm-hmm. of Leonardo, you don't end up painting the Mona Lisa or, for that matter, discovering how the aortic valve works. I right. mean, that was a major discovery. Mm-hmm. So, And he does it because he loves how water flows and swirls, which is part of his art. It's right. part of the curls of the people he paints. And it's part of his science and it's part of his anatomy dissections. So I guess that would be, to me, the biggest misconception is that he was just a painter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think people think anymore. It's it's an interesting thing but because he's known yeah. for the thing. But let's, still, let's right. start in this section, the painter part. Talk about his painting, and then I want to mostly talk about his science and technology. Well, one of the things he does in art that is truly significant is what's called sfumato, which is mm-hmm. the blurring of the lines as if they were like smoke because it it stems from his science. He realizes that there are no sharp lines. You're mm-hmm. looking at my face right now. It's not something you can draw in lines because the light hits the curves. Mm-hmm. The curves make different shadows. Mm-hmm. But also we have two eyes with large retinas. Right. And so any line in nature is slightly blurred. Mm-hmm. So that's a key to his painting. So different, say, from Michelangelo, who draws right. with a disegno style, you mm-hmm. know, and sharp lines. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, his ability to project three dimensions mm-hmm. on a two-dimensional you know, panel or surface or whatever was a huge leap of art that was happening around that time in the Renaissance. He's very collaborative and he learns from Brunelleschi and Alberti, but also all the painters in the studio where he's working. But he's able to capture the mathematics of perspective so that when you and, – and play tricks with it. So when you look at The Last Supper, the room looks deeper than it is because it's an accelerated perspective. Well, that's different from the flat paintings that came along then. But you'll notice in both those cases, I talked about how the science and the mm-hmm. art were blended together. Mm-hmm. And how he used that, especially in the – talk about the Mona Lisa in that way. Cause... The Mona Lisa is the culmination. Mm-hmm. I mean this evening, we're in Washington now. I'm going to be at the National Gallery in front of Ginevra da Benci, which mm-hmm. is – a early, early portrait he did of a cloth merchant's wife in Florence. Mm-hmm. And it's a great painting, but it's not one of the world's greatest masterpieces mm-hmm. because he's trying to connect the rivers of the earth to the body and her emotions, but they're things that don't quite work. Mm-hmm. Near the end of his life, in fact, at the end of his life, because he takes 16 years with the Mona Lisa. He mm-hmm. spends a lot of time with it. It's by his deathbed. Uh, you know, when he's still dabbling with it. It's the same type of picture. It's a cloth merchant's wife, a Mm -hmm. wife named Lisa, in three-quarters profile with the river flowing from the eons of time, connecting her Mm -hmm. to the spirit of the earth, just like Ginevra da Benci. But they're so different, the Mm -hmm. paintings. So a lifetime spent in dancing with nature and Mm -hmm. being curious about every aspect of nature is reflected in the Mona Lisa. I can give you one specific sure. example, which I love, which is the smile, mm-hmm. the greatest, most right. memorable smile ever. <clears throat> there are two things he does to make that smile work. First of all, he dissects more than 30 human faces, peeling the face off cadavers and delineating every muscle that touches the lips, why the lower lip can move separately from the upper lip, but the upper lip can't move easily separately from the lower lip. Things you and I could figure out, but we don't. He right, did. Right, we do not, yeah. Uh, he looked at every nerve that touches every muscle, and whether it comes from the brain or the spinal cord, 
And on like the 15th page of his notebook where he's drawing these dissections, Mm -hmm. there's a faint sketch. I have it in my book, that whole page. Mm -hmm. And at the top is a faint sketch, which is the first attempt at the smile of the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. There she is smiling, just the lips, smiling Mm -hmm. from the page. Secondly, he had dissected the human eye. So he knows that light that comes directly into the eye and hits the very center of the retina Mm -hmm. sees detail. Right. But the light that hits the edges of the retina see mainly shadows. Mm -hmm. So if you look directly at the lips of the corner of the lips of the Mona Lisa, there's a tiny part of a detail that turns down slightly. But the shadows turn upward. Mm -hmm. So it's a smile that's elusive. You you see it best when you're not looking for it. Mm -hmm. If you're staring directly at her, she may not seem like she's smiling. It's mm-hmm. kind of enigmatic. Mm-hmm. But when your eyes wander to her forehead or her chin or her cheek, suddenly the smile lights up. It's an augmented reality. It's interactive. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, we first see the Mona Lisa when we're young. Yes, and we, we hitchhiked it's one of those to, pain, yeah. Back when we used to hitchhike a lot in Europe, mm-hmm. you'd hitchhike to Paris, you'd get there, and there'd be a whole lot of tourists. Nowadays you go there and there's... 200 people, and they all have their iPhones, and they're not looking at the picture. They're all taking selfies of themselves or pictures of the picture. But as you stare at that picture, it suddenly dawns on you, I get it. This isn't a class by itself. Right. Do you think it's one of the greatest paintings, or has it become such a No, I think that there's a reason that it has become an icon. Why? Because it is the greatest painting. Because it's an AR. I had no idea it was AR. interactive, mm-hmm. your emotions change as you look at it, mm-hmm. and then so do hers. Mm-hmm. Not only her smile, her eyes, famous, Mona Lisa eyes, you mm-hmm. know, they follow you, etc. Those type of things make it so that you're not just seeing a flat portrait. Mm-hmm. You're seeing something that a, a person that has emotion, and all of his life in his notebooks... He's trying to say, how do our inner emotions get reflected in our outward gestures and motions? And here it is culminating in the Mona Lisa. It's not just a portrait. It's a psychological drama that you and I get to interact with. Nobody has come close to painting a painting like that. I had no idea about the technology. All right, we're here with Walter Isaacson. You're a his tech podcast. I know, it's true, but I had no idea. Now I know. We're here with Walter Isaacson. His new book is about Leonardo da Vinci, the great inventor and painter. Um, when we get back, we're going to talk about his focus on science and technology, which is, was vast. Um, and a lot of his things that he thought about creating have come to pass in the thing. We're going to talk about his background, how he got there. He is one of the first, I think, probably one of the first famous entrepreneurs and inventors that we learn about as kids. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. So, Mike, you recently announced a major funding with the intent of bringing relationship marketing, also known as CRM, which is the fancy, <laughs> which is a word nobody understands, but except for <laughs> CRM people, uh, until the multi-screen era. So what's the future of CRM? Yeah, so customers are engaging with brands across more devices than ever. Brands need to create a consistent and personalized experience across these devices. Mm-hmm. So, because things have gotten real confusing, that there's so many da- devices and ways and data platforms that people come in on. Yeah, exactly. When it was just a website, you knew everything that a customer was doing digitally. 
Now they may start on their phone. They may go to the website using their laptop. If certain brands have a、uh, an, an app on, say, Apple TV, they may engage there. They may download the app to the mobile phone and complete the transaction, or go to the store. So there's oftentimes five or six different systems involved. And so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, create a unified view of the customer. And then, in real time, sync that data out to all the different systems that that business uses to effectively run and grow their company. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah,、oh, thank you so much. Thanks. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Guess what I'm talking to this week? I will tell you. I'm talking to Sam B. I'm going to do it live in front of an audience. Joe's Pub in New York City. We're going to talk with her and her boss Kevin Riley, who runs Turner, about what it's like to make a late night comedy show in 2017. It's going to be awesome. The best way to listen to it would be in person. But if you don't join us on Tuesday, you can listen to this for free on Thursday. It will be awesome. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with Walter Isaacson, the prolific writer, the journalist, someone I've known very well. He's a New Orleans resident now. Is that right? You're moving to New Orleans、mm, at least half time. He's a man of the world, a man of letters and science. So let's talk about let's take apart Leonardo. We just talked about his art, which I think most people know him best for. But of late, a lot of people have been talking about his inventiveness and the science around it. Nick, that you noted that Bill Gates bought his、uh, some of his notebooks, his most famous notebooks, the Codex, the Codex, an awesome. Yeah. Awesome so, how much did he pay for that? I don't. I do know, but I, I've sort of forgotten. I try not. Lots. To, but it was, I think, somewhere between thirty and forty million. But no, it wasn't a lot. So it tell was me, tell me definitely why, worth yes, it. Why did he buy that? And let's go into the discussions about. His technologies. I think Bill Gates,、uh, not to speak for him, but has a wide-ranging interest. I mean, he just, you know, listens to Richard Feynman lectures.、Mm-hmm. He loves all forms of science, but but also a great humanism、mm-hmm. to him. I mean,、mm-hmm. as we see, and I think he was interested in Leonardo. I I once heard Bill Gates say that Leonardo was the person in history. Who tried to know the most about everything that could be known,、mm-hmm. and that's、uh, something that's quite inspiring. And there's no better example of it. We have more than seven thousand pages of his notebooks,、mm-hmm. but this one, the Codex Lester, which shows water flowing into a pond, it、mm-hmm. shows the sun, it shows how light reflects from the earth to light up the new moon. All of these wonderful dances with nature.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think that、uh, not speaking for Bill Gates, but、uh, that's why anybody would want that notebook. So, so talk about how he got this way, Leonard. Not Bill Gates, but maybe that's another biography for later for you. <laughs> you shake your head. Oh, he never. Well,、know. he he writes his own books. That's true. That's true. But he, he could be written、yeah. about. So, talk about what made Leonardo this way. How do you become a person that is that curious? I think he had the great good fortune to be born out of wedlock. Ah,、oh, okay. Had he been, most people don't think of that as great. Well, had he been legitimate, born, of, he would have had to have been a notary, like his father and grandfather and great grandfather were.、Mm-hmm. Secondly, he would have been sent to one of the classical schools in Florence for the aspiring upper middle classes and rising middle classes, or a university, and he would have been, you know, stuffed full of the medieval scholastic learning of the time, which was yeah, which was、uh, medieval. I mean that's、mm-hmm. uh, and it was before 
the scientific revolution and the renaissance. And instead, he's unschooled. So he has to teach himself. And he calls himself a man without letters, meaning not schooled. Mm -hmm. A person has to teach himself. And he says, that made me a disciple of experience. Mm -hmm. So that means even as a young kid in the village of Vinci, he is looking at swirls of water, testing things, drawing how water flows and erosion happens, drawing landscapes. Then when he uh, moves to Florence at age 12, he's always experimenting with things because he has to teach himself. himself. So who did he grow up He grew up with his... He grew up with both his father, who was a notary, who mm-hmm. at age 12 moved him to Florence, mm-hmm. but his mother, who for the first time this year, working with Martin Kemp and mm-hmm. uh, Palanti and others, we now know who his mother was. It's in mm-hmm. my book, which is uh, you know a 14-year-old orphaned uh, peasant girl from the village of Vinci. Um, she also helped raise him. So mm-hmm. he, he had a good enough childhood. Being uh, born out of wedlock was not that. I mean, even popes that around that time mm-hmm. had lots of out so of wedlock children. Bad, okay. in, in fact, it was once uh, Jacob Burkhardt, one of the 19th century uh, historians, calls it a golden age for bastards because mm-hmm. it was actually liberated you from going into whatever the family business was right, and right. you got to – become an artist, a poet, but a gold beater, whatever. was around. It was not an orphan life, essentially. Oh, it was definitely not an orphan life. Mm-hmm. And his father brings him to Florence and apprentices him with Veraccio, who has a studio. Now, this is a great studio because it's doing not only art and sculpture, but pageants and plays. And it's taking the copper ball that has mm-hmm. to be engineered and soldered using mirrors that uh, mm-hmm. concentrate the rays of light of the sun it has to be soldered to put on top of the dome of Florence's cathedral, the mm-hmm. Duomo, that mm-hmm. little copper ball. Who does it? Leonardo. He's a young apprentice. He's also posing for the statue of David as like a 12-year-old kid. So we mm-hmm. know what he looks like. He's drawing all of these mechanisms that the studio is using to put the copper ball on top mm-hmm. of the dome. So he's teaching himself. He also has the good fortune to be born in 1452 right when uh, Gutenberg opens up his print shop and starts selling books. Books. And it comes to Italy like wildfire. Italy actually becomes the center of publishing Mm -hmm. uh, by the time Leonardo's 15. So in his notebooks, we see Leonardo listing every week the books he wants to buy. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, Audible. We have to make our list. It's like get the Euclid and... uh, Fortunately, they were all being translated Mm -hmm. because Leonardo wasn't great at Latin. Mm -hmm. So get the new translation of Euclid that's at the Stationers by the Bridge. I mean, these are the type of notes in his notebook. So what makes him curious? What makes him curious is it wasn't crammed out of him by some medieval scholastic schooling Mm -hmm. when he was 10 or 12. And he becomes curious. And he he wants to learn everything. So he'll write, why is the sky blue? Now, you and I quit wondering about that at about age 10. Right, You know, right, we outgrow right. our wonder years. Right, absolutely. And partly maybe because people cram it down and say, hey, hey, quit asking. Yeah. You know, Leonardo never outgrew his wonder years. Right, that's a really good way of putting it. So he grows up, does this apprenticeship. Talk a little bit about his, his, the biography that gets him to the Well, person. you know, he's an apprentice. And as I said, Veraccio, his uh, teacher and the master of the mm-hmm. shop, does a lot of pageants, including for the Duke of Milan is mm-hmm. visiting um, 
Florence. A pageant being a show, essentially. A show, outdoor yeah. shows, you know, the, you know, we forget that there's you know, no TV, no internet, no right. movies, whatever. Right. So what they do in the evening is they have performances. Some mm-hmm. of them are plays. Some mm-hmm. of them are pageants. Some of them are readings or debates. They stage like, mm-hmm. you know, Aspen Institute-like debates, but yeah. on grand stages. And they have parades. So one of the first drawings we have of Leonardo is a helmet for one of uh, the costumes. I remember that. For when the Duke of, yeah, it's a beautiful metal point, Mm -hmm. a silver point in the British Museum. I remember seeing it for the first time. And you go, and what people don't realize, they think it's a piece of art. No, no, he's working for Veraccio. The Duke of Milan is coming to visit Florence. Mm -hmm. And they're putting on a parade and they have to give everybody helmets. Mm -hmm. And there's a dragon and eagle's wings coming Mm -hmm. out of it. It's a great fantasy helmet that you know, you and I may have done when we were 10 or 12 years old. Right. Leonardo's still doing it when he's 15 or 20. And uh, so I think we don't realize how important plays and pageants sure. are to right. his, to him. Uh, growing up. To him. What do you think gave him, an, besides being a bastard, an entrepreneurial bent? Or just people are born with it? Because you've written about a lot of different people who are entrepreneurs. Well, first of all, he had an imagination because one of the things about doing plays, pageants, and spectacles is you have to blur the line between fantasy and reality. Mm-hmm. So he's inventing things. Right. You know that helicopter screw that mm-hmm. everybody says, oh, he invented the helicopter. But, mm-hmm. you know, not exactly. I, you know, I studied the notebooks. That aerial screw thing mm-hmm. was actually done for a play. Mm-hmm. They're bringing the angels down from the rafters, and it curves like that. Mm-hmm. He loves that spiral form of the curve, and he loves the flying of the angels and the, what he called ingenuity, ingenious devices. Mm-hmm. So he starts inventing ingenious devices for the theater. Right. He blurs the line between imagination and reality, and then he says, okay, so it wasn't now meant let's to be try an it in right. the real world. Right. And no, he then does try to make flying machines. He mm-hmm. makes gliders. He makes all sorts of uh, weaponry and machinery right, that tanks. are sort of based on some of his theatrical imaginations. Mm-hmm. Why is he the one? Because a lot of people do that in theater and then they don't take it to the next step. What do you think was about him that he wanted to keep doing it? It was just this restless curiosity? I'll push back a little okay. on the great entrepreneurial spirit because he okay. was inventive. And he mm-hmm. always he invents something that would carve needle. I mean, would, you know, create uh, sewing needles. Right. Like a thousand of them per hour, a machine. Mm-hmm. He said, this is going to make me wealthy. He even calculates how wealthy he's going to be (laughs) by how much he does. But then he never fully follows through on it. So his ideas, There's something about Leonardo Mm -hmm. who loves the conception more than the execution. Right. So we have a lot of inventions that never got made. made. We have a lot of paintings that never got finished. We have treatises that never got published. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a flaw. Mm -hmm. It's also a humanizing thing about Leonardo. And it also is, I mean, I remember Steve Jobs holds up shipping the original Macintosh because the circuit board inside is not beautiful enough. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs knew that sometimes in life you have to follow the normal rule of, you know, real artist ship. You get things out the door. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in life you have to follow the rule, which is let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. And Leonardo sometimes, often, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But, but you, that's why, you could by say the Steve way, Jobs executed quite well. And Steve Leonardo executed didn't. quite well, although better on mm-hmm. his second tour of duty at Apple than in right. his first. Right. One reason he leaves Apple in 1985 is, shall we say, the Macintosh is a work of absolute beauty, but mm-hmm. the execution, sales, yes, supply chains, no and everything are not working that. all that right. well. Likewise, with Leonardo, he executes very well on certain things, 
but he mm-hmm. keeps his inventions and his paintings with him rather than deliver them to patrons all the time. He did not right. dance to the financial incentives of, paint, of what, patrons. What would you say his personality was like? Because you know, Very collegial. Collegial rather than Asbury he or anything else. He loved everybody around him. Mm-hmm. You have a contrast of the two great geniuses in Florence at the time, Michelangelo mm-hmm. Leonardo. Michelangelo is a recluse, sleeps in his you know, dark clothes and mm-hmm. boots, doesn't mm-hmm. have any close friends. Mm-hmm. Leonardo, the other extreme. Throughout his notebooks and the letters and notebooks of contemporaries, mm-hmm. he seems to have about 30 best friends. You right. know, Luca, Luca Pacioli, right. the uh, mathematician. Bramante, you know, a great arch- artist and architect. Uh, you, you know, he goes down the list of all the, the anatomists who helps mm-hmm. him. Yeah, they're going to do an anatomy book together. Leonardo is always walking around town, famously in Florence and later in Milan, mm-hmm. dressed to the nines, you know, quite a dandy, with an entourage of really interesting people around him, having debates and discussions in town squares, riding off to Pavia for when they're in Milan to try mm-hmm. to figure out how do the proportions of a human relate to the proportions right. of a church. Right. And you get Vitruvian Man, that mm-hmm. guy in the circle in the right. square. Right. One of the things I discovered in my book, and Toby Lester has written a book about this, two others have done it, was that wasn't a solo drawing. Mm-hmm. That was done with friends. He right. had two friends who were riding with right. him and doing things and helping design churches. And they all try to get the man in the circle in the square to be a church. So when you think about someone that is, is this an inventor, he we'll get to science in a second, but the technology stuff, that he in, the mm. invention stuff, he thought these up but didn't make a lot of them. Sometimes he made them or tested them or things like that. What do you think the qualities of someone like that are? Is that someone who you would think of today the same thing? Or oh, yeah. I think there are a lot of people, and unfortunately, because this mm-hmm. is not one of Leonardo's great traits, mm-hmm. uh, we know a lot of people who come up with great ideas, love perfecting and perfecting and perfecting the idea, Mm -hmm. but aren't great at getting the product out the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the lines that Steve Jobs, Steve Case, uh, Mm -hmm. Addison apparently used was, vision without execution is hallucination. Mm -hmm. There are times Mm -hmm. when you think of Leonardo and you think, hey, that's a bit of a hallucination. You know, that perpetual motion machine or that particular type of man-powered flying machine, that is never actually going to be manufactured. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as I said, he blurred the line in paintings, blurring the line as he did in theater, but also in his inventions, between uh, fantasy and uh, reality actually helped him envision things that 100 years later right. people would invent. People would invent later. So he was an apprentice, and then talk about what happened. I mean, how, he was making money. So he money, was an apprentice, via... and as I said, he's doing paintings, but, you know, he's a moderately good painter in Florence mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. uh, 20s, uh, but things don't get finished, like the Adoration of the Magi, mm-hmm. St. Jerome in the Wilderness. St. Jerome in the Wilderness is a great example because mm-hmm. it's – He's doing. He's starting to be interested in anatomy, and you see the entire muscle structure, how it informs the drawings that are going to become Saint Jerome in the Wilderness. 
but he goes back to it 30 years later to redo the neck muscles after he's done some anatomy. Right. He so keeps he, this thing like yeah, for yeah. 30 years yeah, yeah, yeah. because he wants he's to make such it just a perfectionist. Right. It's like a writer. So at like age that. 30, as I said, he mm-hmm. writes his job application and goes off to Milan trying to be an engineer mm-hmm. for the Duke of Milan. So uh, in about 1482, when he's 30 years old, he moves to Milan. He writes this 11 paragraph. He writes this 11 paragraph thing. He moves to Milan. He becomes the engineer and painter eventually to the Duke of Milan. How did he get that job? Like, I know it sounds crazy. Well, the job application letter didn't fully help because for the next few years, he was just sort of, as you'd say, a, a freelancer, a contract mm-hmm. worker. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get a full time gig economy with benefits. Right. By, you know, 1490, he's got. Uh, you know, a room and board and weekly stipend mm-hmm. uh, living at the castle in Florence. Uh, but it takes him a while to get the job. And part of the time, he's actually doing plays and pageants, which is his his gig. His gig yeah. He's also doing inventing certain types of weapons because Milan had a pretty good army, unlike Florence. Mm-hmm. And he's starting to paint, especially he's painting the mistresses of Ludovico. Uh, who is mm-hmm. the Duke of Milan? So you have Cecilia with the uh, the other lady with right. the ermine, you know, great. Uh, so what? Portraits. Why did these people back? The, t- talk about the system then. That you, you people who are somewhat knowledgeable about Florence or the mm-hmm. Medici's or something. Like that, why did the Duke of Milan have people like this? Like he, yeah, this is a great because you couldn't question. start your own company then. Like if you think about if you want to give a, why do people have people like this? Well, th- that's a great thing. Like, why does the Renaissance happen when mm-hmm. it does in Italy? Mm-hmm. Give you a hundred reasons, but the one you asked about is you have a rising middle class, like mm-hmm. the Medici. Mm-hmm. The Medici have become bankers in mm-hmm. Florence. And by the way, they become huge bankers because, like a lot of people today, they've invented new forms, right. like right. venture capital and private equity. They've. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taken one of uh, Leonardo's friends, Luca Pacioli, the mathematician, idea of debit and credit bookkeeping, double right. entries for debit and credit, which, you know, if you're yeah. a, a business person listening to this, you get how important that is. Mm-hmm. That had not, that's a pretty important invention. Yeah, it happens right then. So the Medici become huge bankers along with three or four other bankers. They're all building their you know, wonderful homes and palazzos. They have to show, because they're rising middle class and not mm-hmm. aristocracy, that they have as much taste, taste and, and devotion and right. class as they do money. So they have a lot of Madonnas painted for them by rising artists. The Medici become great patrons of the arts. And once again, the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, you know, his father was like a bad mercenary soldier, ends mm-hmm. up taking over Milan. Mm-hmm. He's not a hereditary aristocracy. Right. So they want both, to bring smart people in. Both because they want to embellish their court, they want to, uh, they and many other reasons, and show their worthiness, they create around them courts that have everything from playwrights and poets to mathematicians and architects mm-hmm. and scientists and anatomists and, uh, and engineers and engineers and they do it partly for the joy of it but up until then you didn't have wealthy patrons trying to prove that they had taste in right. class. But was there used to he, so he's hired as an engineer to do things or lots he's of He's called the engineer and painter. Right. He's both and I'm not sure Leonardo just like Steve Jobs, would make that big of a distinction 
between design so what did he do from a day and, to day? and art. What was his job? Uh, a lot of the evenings, he helped put on pageants and plays or mm-hmm. readings. They staged debates, one of mm-hmm. which Leonardo debates that painting is a higher art form than poetry, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But they also do plays and pageants that involve big mechanisms and ingenious devices. But during the daytime, too, he had paintings that he had to execute, such as, most importantly, The Last Supper, Mm -hmm. which he's doing in the 1490s for the Duke of Milan at a refectory or dining hall of a monastery uh, that the uh, Duke loved to uh, patronize. Mm -hmm. And so Leonardo, I mean, this by this time he's famous, people are there to, sh- to watch, to watch be an audience paint. while he paints. Mm-hmm. And we have descriptions of him. He kind of blows in with his wonderful, you know, purple cloaks and tunics and stuff and will stand in front of the painting for like half an hour and then just do two brush strokes and then disappear. Mm-hmm. And he'd sort of say, you have to let your ideas marinate and... So he was a somewhat, uh, he would paint during the day. So he became famous during this time. He had been famous? He's definitely famous, especially by the time he pulls off The Last Supper in the 1490s. And he's done quite a few portraits for the Duke of Milan. He had been semi-famous in Florence, but a little bit more famous for not finishing the Adoration of the Magi Mm -hmm. than for painting the Adoration of the Magi. All right. We're here with Walter Isaacson. He's written a new book about Leonardo da Vinci. It's his latest book. Walter's written a string of them, um, people like that you might have heard of, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and Ben Franklin, and Henry Kissinger, which is very different from that group. Um, when we get back, we're going to talk about sort of what Leonardo says about innovation and where innovation is going. We're here on Recode Decode. This show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology in everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you count on without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now the company that changed everything with the smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone, no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash weinvent. Today's show is brought to you by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. At Synchrony Financial, they believe your ambition isn't something you just look forward to. It's what you work forward to. That's why they partner with businesses to help provide payment tools and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights. Every day at more than 350,000 partner locations, they help people and businesses fulfill their unique ambitions, big and small, for themselves and their communities. Because at the end of the day, when customers succeed, businesses succeed. And when we all work together, we can achieve more than we can alone. The only question is, what are you working forward to? Learn more at synchronyfinancial.com. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Hold on, I'm just, I'm looking up some budget options over here for tech products. I don't want to spend $1,100 on a phone, Kara. Can we talk about this? No, we can't talk about it. So every Friday we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about this week? Obviously budgeting. We talked about budget options after a very busy fall hardware season where we've seen a lot of new stuff being announced and rolled out, but not everyone wants to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on the best and newest stuff. So we brought in Jackie Chang. 
Jackie Chang is the editor-in-chief of The Wirecutter. No longer The Wirecutter, just Wirecutter. Jackie, thank you for joining us this week. Very quickly, tell people what we talked about and what your number one piece of advice is for people who are looking for a less expensive tech option. We talked about budget tech, tech that you can get if you're trying to save a little bit of money, whether it's smartphones, laptops, uh, speakers, or anything else. You know, my number one piece of advice is actually to start with figuring out what you want to get and then go find it for the right price. Usually that will help you avoid some scams. But then, you know, my number one piece of advice then would be once you figure out what you want, go to a reliable place like Gazelle or the uh, manufacturer's refer pages. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here on Recode Decode, and our guest is Walter Isaacson, who I've known for a very long time. He's a great writer, and his latest book, uh, he's a reporter, writer, and a thought leader, I would say. Um, Oh, you are. You have the Aspen Institute. A thought follower. No, you guys have a lot of big thoughts up there in the mountains. And his latest book is on Leonardo da Vinci and his impact on other innovators and, and moving things forward. We talked about the middle of his life where he started to get some fame, traction, fame yeah. and traction. What was his impact then and now? Let's talk about that. Like, what, how did his life end and how did he continue? He just continued to do the same thing he did the whole his whole life or was there a difference? Yeah, he continues to balance engineering with art. Right. Now, his art indeed surpasses everything anybody has ever right. done in I was going to ask, is there any that engineering matter, thing engineering. that he did? No, he does a lot of engineering ideas. Mm-hmm. Some of them come to fruition, like as I say, a century later, two centuries later. Or... Exactly. What else? What other things? People know about the helicopter. but Well, his ability to divert rivers and mm-hmm. to show uh, how water flows. He Why was do a you hydro- want to divert a Well, you know, I think just as a little kid, mm-hmm. I mean, do you, I don't know if you remember. I remember growing up in New Orleans, a little mm-hmm. kid. You find little streams and rivers in the bayou, and you're building little, you know, you're diverting it. Mm-hmm. I never he did that. Lo- but if from the very beginning of his life, the first sketch we have is a landscape drawing. The very last sketches are these swirls of the deluge, mm-hmm. and him sitting there looking how water flows against obstacles mm-hmm. and forms swirls mm-hmm. afterwards. Hey. We all get interested. We all geek out on something. something. Mm -hmm. And that was Leonardo's great fame. So it leads, as I said, um, to scientific discoveries Mm -hmm. that are very significant. Mm -hmm. Like his dissections invent, among other things, the visual display of information. Mm -hmm. In other words, he dissects a lot of bodies and layer after layer. He shows the muscles and then Mm -hmm. the nerves and then the heart and he does it in so layers. So he uses his painting skills. Yeah, so. and so the combination of that painting and drawing skills and his anatomy and science skills. So, for example, there's a uh, aortic valve, the, mm-hmm. um, and people thought that it's when the blood pushes up from the heart chamber into the valve, uh, past the valve, the pressure then closes the valve. Leonardo said, no, that wouldn't work. It would crumple because mm-hmm. I know how water works, right. flowing fluids work. And he shows that when you go from a large ventricle to a smaller thing, there's a swirl because of the way, just like if you put a pipe into a bowl, it would swirl. Um, And it's that swirl that, because of the centrifugal force, opens up the membrane that then becomes the valve. Mm -hmm. Those are like, whoa, amazing inventions that just about 15 years ago, they finally totally proved... With, right. you know, magnetic imaging and other ways Watching to look happen. at actual it happen. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, Leonardo designed, for example, for the Duke of Milan and then for Francis I, the mm-hmm. king of France, who's his last patron. He goes to Amboise in France. He designs ideal cities because he understands that the greatest scourge they have back then is the plague. Right. It keeps decimating cities. Mm-hmm. He realizes bad sanitation right. is underlying Which the plague. Been, yeah. Yeah. And so he invents a type or designs a type of city in which below the surface there's sewer uh, drainage lines, that the water flows through to a lower surface with sewage and drainage, which also has deliveries and horses that, mm-hmm. you know, they're you know, need to be cleaned up after, et cetera. Right. And the top layer is where the people walk and live. Which is what we have today. Yeah, it's what we have today. Now, they never fully built it either. Uh, but he the, thought about but it. But he thought about it and he drew it. And had they built it, they would have stopped, you know, another hundred years of the plague. Right. Probably. The other thing he does that I love is mathematics. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of mathematical things that kind of work, kind of don't. But he tries something that's impossible. Mm-hmm. And every now and then you have to try something that's impossible right. to Not figure out why it's right. impossible and right. to push yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the age-old problem of squaring the circle, mm-hmm. which means taking a circle of a certain area and trying to make a square of the exact same area mm-hmm. using only a protractor and ruler. Mm-hmm. For reasons that your listeners know, uh, most of your listeners know, that's impossible because pi is a wildly irrational number, mm-hmm. and so it can't actually be done that way. But Leonardo tries hundreds of ways to do wow. it. Even when he's young, he's drawing, you know, and you get to Vitruvian Man. There's the guy in the circle in the square with the same area tries mm-hmm. to be because mm-hmm. the circle extends higher than the square. So the navel can be at the center of the circle and the genitals are right, right. in the center of the square. But here's what I was going to get to. His last notebook page that we know, because you asked mm-hmm. about his life. He ends his life in France under the patronage of Francis the mm-hmm. First, and we have a page in which he's, you know, thinking about a variety of things, but in the margin, he's doing four more drawings that show a right triangle, changing the length of the legs, triangles inside shaded, trying to do that transformation of shapes to the mm-hmm. very end, and the last line, it dribbles off mm-hmm. It says, you know, here's another way of looking at it. And then it pauses and says, but the soup is getting cold. Meaning. And you imagine there he is upstairs in the little manor house mm-hmm. that he has with his whole entourage and students mm-hmm. and everybody's waiting downstairs. His cook is named Matarine. Mm-hmm. We know about her. He, uh, when he dies, he leaves her a cloak and some other things. And you just imagine him there, even though he's old, even though he's dying, even though the people waiting downstairs mm-hmm. still trying, trying to, to square, square the circle. The circle. Ah, that's great. But well, the soup is getting cold. How would he cold. do – we want to finish up talking about how we would do today and where innovation is because you've written – that innovation has mm-hmm. been a big theme throughout your career. How would he do today? What did, What would he think of the internet? Well, there's a couple of things I would think about. One is, as I said, he was born when Gutenberg started Right. So he books. loved technology. So he loved to drill down and right. teach himself. Right. And he would love the fact that – just like he could use books to teach himself everything from math to anatomy mm-hmm. to Vitruvius design of churches and experience and mix books with experience, he would just think that the internet is, you know, even greater than Gutenberg's mm-hmm. invention because anybody identity. anywhere 
can find out almost anything about everything Mm -hmm. and then share their knowledge with anyone. This, to Leonardo, would be heaven. Mm -hmm. I think a downside would be, in his notebooks, you see at times he's distracted. Mm, oh, or yeah. so he'd be he gets on Twitter all the time. totally obsessed sometimes, mm-hmm. like 42 attempts to square the circle all on mm-hmm. one page and just page mm-hmm. after page mm-hmm. of geeking out on squaring the circle. And he had these, you know, mood swings and depressions where he's doing storms and stuff. Uh, you know, in our day and age, they probably would have been diagnosed with 42 different types of, you know, ADHD and obsessive compulsive and depression and manic. And I don't think he, I I don't like applying labels like that. And they may have put him on some pharmaceutical regimen to cure them all. Mm -hmm. And we may not have had the Mona Lisa. Right, right. That's true. So what do you think his impact on innovation is? Because, you know, you said a lot of people were very interested in him. Where do we get innovation? Is that just born or just people are like that? I think you can be as a kid curious. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're like Leonardo, you say, let me just explore things because you have a natural curiosity. But here's a point I want to make. And it's sort of one of the themes of the book. Partly it's a natural curiosity, but it's also something you can cultivate. Mm -hmm. You can will yourself to be more curious. Mm -hmm. When I look at the list of things he asked each day, Mm -hmm. you know, like how does uh, light form luster on a shiny leaf? Right. You know, wh- why do people yawn? Uh, what does the tongue of a woodpecker look like? I mean, who wakes right. up one morning and wants right. to know what a tongue... I but don't Leonardo know. But Leonardo did. And throughout his life, it's kind of an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. And each of us in our daily lives mm-hmm. can pause for a moment. I'm sitting in a room. It's a podcast room. Yeah, and we're touching it has, these things. And I'm so touching... Cool. Uh, the things that deaden the sound. Right. And they're pyramids. Right. And the lights hitting they're the pyramid. They're quite beautiful, yeah. They're quite beautiful. But I also wonder, okay, that pyramid design of the foam, why does why. that deaden sound a little bit better mm-hmm. than a flat design would? Right, right. And you think about it for a moment, you can figure it out. But having worked on Leonardo for so long, I try, I'm never going to be Leonardo, but I try to just see the most ordinary things in life mm-hmm. and pause for mm-hmm. an extra 10 seconds to, find to say why. why right, right, and be curious. So are you worried about innovation now or do you think this just always happens? Innovation just happens in cycles or where do you think we are? I think we uh, went through a period uh, when you and I were coming mm-hmm. of age uh, and when Silicon Valley had the combination of the microchip, the internet, and the personal computer. And then uh, eventually uh, the iPhone Mm -hmm. and then mobile. All of that comes together to create innovation that's completely transformative. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're in a phase like that right now. Most of the innovation is on things like social media or whatever, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't change the world the way having apps on an iPhone allows Ubers mm-hmm. and Airbnbs and mm-hmm. everything else. To Although exist. some might argue that with the social media has become weaponized. And... Oh, I think social media is deeply, deeply influential. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I just right. think yeah. that it's, We're it's not yeah. like Gutenberg's printing no. press necessarily in terms of being a platform upon which a whole set no. of intellectual property No, but we do get to built. yell at each other a lot. Yeah, and, get and um, there's, yeah, that's... 
a downside. There's not greatness in Twitter, let's just say. <laughs> well, I mean, this will be for another podcast, yeah. Yeah. but the type of social media we invented uh, enshrines anonymity, which mm-hmm. I think hurts the civility of it. Mm-hmm. And anonymity is very important. We have to keep it. But we also ought to have places like Leonardo or Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and others had that are common ground where mm-hmm. you actually know mm-hmm. the people you're talking to. Right. And so to me, I think we need civil places as well as anonymous places. But that's for a different podcast. But when we get – does genius just happen like at Bourne or – you know, you, well, you've genius, been writing about geniuses really. When I wrote about Einstein, I said, OK, some people are just born. Mm-hmm. They're touched by lightning mm-hmm. uh, and they have a mental processing power that will allow them – to figure out tensor calculus and how it, it mm-hmm. can be used to describe the curvature of space and time. Sure. And you think, no, I can't pause each day and look at the mm-hmm. uh, sound if acoustical you know, right. tiles and right. be like Einstein. Mm-hmm. That's why I like writing about Leonardo. Mm-hmm. He was, his first biographer, who was a contemporary of Vasari, another painter, said he was touched by lightning with superhuman powers. No, he actually... Well, I mean, he was touched with great talents in painting, mm-hmm. but but his ability to will himself to ask questions and be curious each day, right. the ability to push himself to observe more carefully, go down to the moats around the castle and look at the dragonflies, to s- a four-winged dragonflies, right. to well, see if the wings yeah. alternate or whether they go in unison. Right. That's not – you don't have to be a genius to do it. Right. You just have to be – The will. Will to be observant. Mm-hmm. And um, all of us can have the will to be more observant, mm-hmm. can indulge fantasy and not knock it out of our children and ourselves the way mm-hmm. we sometimes do, uh, can indulge curiosity right. even about – not just useful curiosity, not just I need to know exactly how this new microchip will do, you know, a Pascal code better or not, mm-hmm. but curiosity for curiosity's sake, it, like it, the tongue of the woodpecker. Yeah, it's really interesting because I have, one of my sons is very inventive. Like, invents, he's got rooms and rooms this of invention. This does not surprise <laughs> me, <laughs> but, knowing you and Megan. Well, I know, but he's – I think he's just born with it. I just – you know, I just – I literally do because the things he comes up with, I, I think about it a lot because I think, how did he get this way? Because my other son's great and he's really fun, but he's not this – it's not the same thing. Well, we're all born differently and we I know, but it's a certain that. level of invention. Like, he's literally and always – And you in, and Megan are going to be – Particularly good in not destroying no, that not in at him all, and not, not at all. But I do it think it was him. genetic. I just do. I think he just has like. You will have experts on this show much better yeah. at knowing the mix but it, but and combination when I was thinking of heritage Leonardo, and breeding. I was like, like when I was looking at the notebooks, I go, like, he has a notebook like that. He just writes things down. Like it, yeah. he makes some of them. He doesn't make some. Of them. And it's a really. I just wonder how. But don't it's sell him short. It what? wasn't just that he was blessed with it. Okay, all right. It's, he is curious right. and indulges it and pushes himself and allows himself. And so if we kind of say it's all genetic. Gen- genius. Just yeah, genius, from genius is all genetic. Then we're not going to say, let me pause and look at the so light, I, way I the light's hitting the leaves. I end on that because you know, we're facing some really big issues in this country besides the horrible political environment, which will pass as they always mm-hmm. do. 
Uh, That's about storms. Yeah, about storms. They pass. They pass. So what do you imagine the lessons of Leonardo? Because it really is the very best of humanity, that kind of thinking, like this kind of thing. So give me the end on sort of the lessons of that we have to think about going forward because we're dealing with robotics, AI, automation, artificial intelligence, self-driving cars. There's a lot of big challenges for our society. I actually All of which are inventive, but – I actually end this book in a way I Mm -hmm. haven't ended Mm -hmm. my other books, which is just come right out and say, here's Mm -hmm. the 25 lessons. Right. Because in some ways, it's a culmination of having learned from Ben Franklin and Mm -hmm. Einstein and Steve Jobs and Ada Lovelace and the innovators. Mm -hmm. And this is somewhat of a culminating book. I don't Mm -hmm. think I'm going to write about another big, innovative, inventive Mm -hmm. genius again. So I say, okay, here are the lessons. And some I mentioned, which is stay curious. You know, take notes, uh, be observant. But I think one of the huge lessons of everybody I've learned about is to combine the humanities with engineering, to combine art with science. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we silo things. There's going to be a point where even your inventive kid is going to be told, okay, drill down in engineering or math or whatever, Mm -hmm. specialize. No. Learning coding is important and learning engineering is important. But someday machines will code pretty well and help without us, us right, without yeah. us. But what will Creativity. be the Ada Lovelace moment, because mm-hmm. she was the one who wrote about this in 1830, was the combination of human creativity and machine processing power having an inventiveness that will exceed what machines alone can do right. or what humans alone can do. It's interesting. Someone thinks the jobs of the future, the only ones that will exist will be ones – which have humanity or creativity also involved in them. And then the but rest are just digital. But also an important word, right. which is you have to interweave mm-hmm. an ability to be in creative and a sense of the humanities with a sense of engineering. You can't be a humanist no, and cede that to the engineers. Right. Right. And that's what Vitruvian Man, that's our poster for mm-hmm. that, which mm-hmm. is be like Leonardo. There he is standing there, spread eagle in the world in the cosmos, trying to figure out how we fit in, mm-hmm. combining creativity Absolutely. with scientific anat- in, uh, and anatomy. And that humanism is what's going to help us when we get artificial intelligence, when we face the moral issue that algorithms yeah. might get out of our control. They are All, out of our control. Right. Yeah. And it's those with a feel for both the humanities, history, art, music, and the patterns of nature, how they ripple mm-hmm. from the rivers that we see as a kid to our heart valve to the uh, equations we do to describe the curvature of space and time. All of these patterns, if we have a feel for it, and a feel for the humanities, which is about, at its core, why change happens, why some people resist it, and some people cause it. Right. Humanities at its core is what is creativity? How do you achieve it? Leonardo, the lessons in the last chapter of the book are all about the need for that combination right. of creativity. Right, right. The thing is, it, it, the reason he is also known is for the movies and for the movie and the books by, um, mm-hmm. whatchamacallit. Um, did that bother you? The popularity of the popular books with Tom Hanks, the Da Vinci Code. Oh, the Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. 
No, I mean I love the. I mean anything that makes. I thought you were talking about Leonardo no. DiCaprio, who no. is doing no. uh, the biographical movie, or at least bought the rights. So this to is it. To, to make. Yeah, this. he acquired the rights to make uh, my biography into mm-hmm. a movie. The Da Vinci Code of that Dan Brown. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful work of fiction. Sometimes he pushes it and says, oh, no, it's all true. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, John in The Last Supper is actually John. It's not mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. We know that. But what he does and what Tom Hanks does, what all these people do, is combine imagination and fantasy with mm-hmm. reality. And we can scoff at that or we can admire and learn from it. And right. I think Although Leonardo people do think that's Mary puzzle. Magdalene now. You know that, like, because of that movie. Fake okay, news. Okay, let me fake just news. tell people, fake news are sometimes wrong. <laughs> fake Novels news are sometimes fiction. Right. And The Last Supper, John trust is me, John leans on Jesus's breast, and in the painting, he's starting to lean the other way. Leonardo has created a narrative painting in which one of you shall betray me is emanating Mm-hmm. from Jesus. Each one is reacting as they would in a theater. Mm-hmm. It's not a still scene. It's a dramatic, emotional narrative scene. And that's John. That's just not all Mary it Madeline. is. Oh, Walter, you're making it was so exciting when it was Mary Magdalene. <laughs> um, what's your next book? Last question. I think I'm going to do a book about New Orleans and maybe about Storyville in the mm-hmm. 1890s, maybe about Lulu White, mm-hmm. who was an octoroon who opened a sporting house and hired... Um, uh, Jelly Roll Morton to be the piano player and Louis Armstrong. Oh, so be totally different. But also it's about race because mm-hmm. uh, that was before the color line was drawn because it was right during that decade that somebody who was a neighbor named Homer W. Plessy mm-hmm. boards a train and we get Plessy the v. Ferguson, which is so destructive because it uh, allows the drawing of a color line legally. Mm-hmm. Those type of things interest me. It's not, but it's not going to be another genius innovator book. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci and the last chapter of it culminates. Culminates, and you're leaving the Aston Institute. Well, I'm going to move down. I'm going to be a teacher of uh, history. I'm going to teach at Tulane. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first course, which I hope you'll come lecture at, I love New Orleans. Is called. uh, History of the Digital Revolution wow. from Ada to Zuckerberg. Well, I got some information and you, and, on that. And your uh, your <laughs> and listeners you, don't need to running? explain what Ada to Zuckerberg means. Um, are you running for mayor of New Orleans? No, the mayor's race is actually the week after next. Yeah. Uh, well, there's lots of mayor's races. Well, yeah. In I mean, the future. Four, eight years from now. Oh, heavens. I don't know where I'm going to be You'd then. You'd be a good but, mayor. Uh, I've, there are two wonderful women running for mayor of New Orleans this time around. Good. All right. Well, Walter Isaacson, as usual, you are also a very curious person. I'm excited to read your next book. What do you book. mean by that? <laughs> it's a compliment. Thank you. Anyway, thanks for coming. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with people like Geography of Genius author Eric Weiner and Finding Magic author Sally Quinn. Next week on November 1st, be sure to look for a bonus episode of Recode Decode. We'll be starting the month of special episodes about tech and politics, which I will co-host with Democratic strategist Hillary Rosen. You can find those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. Thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. Hey, Recode Decode listeners. This is Liz Plank. And Heatha Herzog. We have a listening recommendation for you. Our podcast, Divided States of Women. Our podcast brings you the voices of women scholars, writers, thinkers, and power players, weighing in on everything from conceal and carry laws to the state of modern marriage from a feminist perspective. Just search Divided States of Women on your favorite podcasting app.